Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on another brilliant guest. She is a clinical psychologist and the author of a new book called Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. And this is Dr. Chloe Carmichael. Welcome to the show. Hi, Zuby. It is so good to be with you. Ever since I heard your song, OK Dude, and it really inspired me, truly inspired me like years ago. Um, so thanks. It's really a pleasure to be with you. I'm so honored. I have to ask now, how, how did the song inspire you? Well, I mean, basically what the song to me is about, you know, I hope I didn't totally misunderstand it, but the way that I took it was that it was a song really about free speech and, you know, just not letting fears of cancel culture stop you from, you know, being yourself and just really standing up to that. And, um, I, I remember at the time I sent you a DM, I've never even met you or interacted with you. And I just was like, hey, I want you to know you're really inspiring me. Um, because for me, I'm a clinical psychologist and um, don't hold it against me. But like I'm an Ivy League grad and like I was living in New York and I'm like I was in the media. So all these factors and reasons were um, actually making me really, really scared of cancel culture. And I was in a verbal straitjacket for much of my life. And I really found, you know, that song just honestly was almost like a catalyst for me. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's awesome. I'm honored. Um, sweet. Well, I've done a brief intro right there, Dr. Chloe. But for people who are not so familiar with you and your work, you've given a touch of an intro there. But tell them a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist, which means I have a PhD in clinical psychology. And before I was a psychologist, I was a yoga teacher. And um, I'm also a small business owner. So, you know, my business employs other therapists and staff and things like that. Um, and then I was really delighted a few years ago. Um, I was actually asked to write a book, which, you know, Nervous Energy and that book was endorsed by Deepak Chopra and some other people that were, you know, really thrilling for me to see. Um, so the book is about the healthy function of anxiety, which is to stimulate preparation behaviors. I feel like there's so much, you know, kind of emphasis on destigmatizing mental health issues, which is fine. But, 
I think that also sometimes we need to also learn about mental true health, you know, and learning about how um, every part of our human experience doesn't have to be about a disorder either, that there's, you know, a, a positive aspect to that. Um, and then, you know, as I was saying uh, a little bit more recently, a couple of years ago, getting involved with your music and with the pandemic, they wanted to mask, you know, my child as they were trying to do to everyone's little children in the Northeast. And that was just a turning point for me. Uh, I wrote uh, an article about the harms of masking children, and it was kind of a coming out of the closet moment for me. And that stimulated me to start writing as well about the mental health benefits of free speech and other things. So for the last couple of years, I've been out of the box a little bit. That's awesome. There's a lot of directions we can go there, but the last thing you said right there, talking about the mental health benefits of free speech, those are not two things that people normally link and connect together. So tell me a little bit more about the connection between free speech and mental health. Yeah, of course. Um, I would love to. And I think, as you said, it's unusual for whatever reason. I guess the reason, honestly, is probably because the psychology profession skews like extremely, extremely left. Um, so, you know, the current framing around mental health and free speech often gets framed as if, okay, well, free speech is great, but we have to protect everybody from hate speech and bullying. So free speech is somehow in competition, you know, with mental health. And in fact, I believe that nothing could be further from the truth. I actually think free speech facilitates mental health. So, um, you know, I, I wrote an article for the New York Post about this, and I've also written for Fox about this as well. So um, I, I can I can talk all day about it, but I mean, to give you kind of a starting point, and hopefully we can talk more about it, but um, free speech helps people to learn and grow. So evolutionary psychologists have long speculated that part of the reason humans um, evolved to such a sophisticated species is because of our gift of language. So we we can share and exchange information rapidly. We can form bonds rapidly, all these things, you know, through language. And of course, we shut that down when we stifle, whether it be scientific discussions or, you know, social discussions or anything along those lines. Also, when it comes to anxiety and depression, when we speak our mind, you know, again, it's so ironic to me that psychologists have an issue a lot of times with free speech because um, therapists are always trying to get people to put things into words. We've always known that talking it out and putting things into a system of language is really soothing and studies show that it also slows down your amygdala activity. So it takes you out of the you know, fight or fight place unnecessarily. Also, when we talk and we have true real interactions, real talk, <laughs> like your show with people, we have a uh, better social support. And so, you know, psychologists know that social support is key to mental health. And I think social support is, of course, stated if, you know, we're stifling ourselves and not being ourselves. So that is the tip of the iceberg on why um, free speech, I think, is good for mental health. Yeah. I have a lot of interesting observations about the sort of current state of the social and cultural conversation about mental health, because someone might disagree with me on this one, but I think we've gone from stigmatizing it to reasonably destigmatizing it. And we've now moved into a point of oftentimes celebrating and encouraging mental health problems. 
and wanting to talk about it on a very sort of surface level, but not really address a lot of the underlying issues. I hear more therapy talk than I've ever heard in my life before. I hear the words depression, anxiety, and the term mental health more than I've ever heard at any other point in my life. But at the same time, according to all measures, depression is going up, anxiety is going up, uh, mental health generally amongst the population is going down, even as people get more comfortable. And a lot of the sort of real major issues, at least in modern Western society, are are dealt with. And then we go and create new ones. Um, so I don't know what what is what is going on there. I, I think perhaps what might be useful is um even defining a couple of terms, because there's terms I see I see bandied about all the time. Some of them I have my own sort of understanding of or a dictionary definition of, but it seems like people use them differently. So to start with, um, how would you define mental health? Mm, wow, that is a good question. Um, but I, I do just want to say as well, I, I agree with you that we've gone from destigmatizing issues with mental health to almost reifying, you know, glorifying, putting upon a pedestal. And, you know, why that is, I mean, I think we have a victim economy going on. And in psychology, we have something called secondary gains, which mm -hmm. is a very real thing. It's the benefits that you get when you're sick. Like, so in a psychology textbook, the classic example is, you know, a little girl breaks her leg. And even when her leg is healed, she insists it's still broken because she's gotten so into, you know, missing gym class, having people sign her cast, all that kind of thing. So the victim economy and the secondary gains, it's a real factor. Also, you know, there's big pharma, there's big money, the more diagnoses that, you know, are floating around, you know, the more money that is made. So, um, but as far as like, you know, defining mental health, I mean, I, I would say, you know, obviously we're talking about your mind and, and we're talking, you know, in really basic terms, like, are you connected to reality? Which again is such an interesting thing. I think we're tampering, um, you know, with reality in so many different ways with what we're asking people to believe about what's true and what's not true. Um, the piece I wrote for Fox was about the Twitter files and about the gaslighting that occurred when, you know, they were not only shadow, like banning people and, and tamping down visibility, but then lying and saying they were not doing it. So they were manipulating and creating a false sense of social consensus, a false sense of social reality. So people had a distorted sense, you know, of, of what are social norms. So again, when I think about mental health, the first step basically is that, you know, you have to be grounded in, in reality. Um, you know, you also have to be you know, willing to be honest about, you know, what are, what are some of the things I'm working on? You know, what are my vulnerabilities? And when we start getting confused about, you know, vulnerabilities, you know, versus, you know, victim cards, um, things can get really confusing for people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that point you made about the, what did you call it? Secondary effects? Secondary, secondary gains. Is a secondary gains. Term. Yeah. That, that's, that's actually a really good term and I can totally understand. And I, I can see that, right? We're living in a strange society where not everybody, but a lot of people seem to be enjoying uh, feigning victimhood and claiming all the points and currency and sympathy that comes with that. And people will find sort of any excuse in any way that they can put themselves in this in this victim framing. Well, um, you know, what, what 
Right. I just have to say what 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 can be done because I know it's easy to say like well we see some people doing that you know but but the interesting thing is that we all do it to some degree right so whether we're conscious or unconscious of it all of us on some level you know probably have some kind of you know secondary gain you know situation and when people were coming out of um, quarantine. Um, a lot of people have social anxiety that was keeping them, you know, from re-entering the world. And one of the ways that I found as a psychologist helpful, you know, for people with that, that I think could translate to other areas, if you have people listening that think maybe they, you know, have some secondary gains going on, how do you get out of that trap, right? What you do is you is you become honest and you ask yourself, what are my secondary gains? And in the COVID quarantine case, people were like, okay, well, the secondary gain is I'm spending more time with my family. I'm less stressed, you know, listing them out. And then what you do is you say, okay, how can I keep these secondary gains going while also getting well, while also getting, you know, past this, you know, supposed obstacle? Because when we can be honest about it, then we can pursue getting those gains just another way we, we we don't have to be stuck in letting that hold us back yeah i never quarantined so i can't relate but um <laughs> <laughs> good for you buddy good I, know, for you. I know i know i know that some people did um so i was talking about how I, I think a lot of therapists speak is becoming mainstreamed um i find it annoying but i'm curious to know what the proper definitions of some of these terms are another word i hear nonstop is trauma Everyone all of a sudden has trauma and everyone's talking about trauma and everything's trauma, 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 and then healing, trauma, healing, trauma, healing, trauma. I, I, I didn't know so many people had been to war or had been through like such horrible experiences, but that's another word that is being, I call it label inflation, right? When a word is used so much that it sort of loses its potency, it gets diluted by overuse and misuse. But I'm curious to know from a clinical psychologist perspective, what is what actually is trauma like I, well, I think i know I, what it, i think i know what it's meant to mean but what what does it mean no i agree with you i actually have trauma from hearing that word abuse so much right um i i think you're exactly right so when i was um in graduate school and reading you know literature and learning about you know these things i remember myself being a little surprised you know to to see certain types of things referred to as you know trauma right um, I think as you alluded to, you know, we typically think of that as, you know, somebody who's been to war or, you know, had a had a life threatening experience on some level. And then I think that it was like a, kind of a, a mission creep on that word where, OK, so then it started maybe getting extended to like children whose parents got divorced. OK, you know, and then it starts, you know, getting extended to, you know, just all kinds of things that are relatively minor, but we have to remember that we're living in an era where people like to say that words are violence, which by the way, is another, in my opinion, a break with reality, right? That's not helpful. That's um, heightening anxiety. But when you when you live with that viewpoint, you know, that words are violence, you could say, well, you know, I, I, I felt traumatized because, you know, somebody called me a name or whatever, you know, and I, I think it's, yeah, you know, and it's, it's like, it's, I think it's a really misguided form of compassion. I think, you know, assuming they're coming from a good place, you know, maybe therapists are trying to, you know, name, name the issue and, and communicate that they recognize it as something important to the person who experienced it. 
But I really think it's backfiring because what it's doing is it's undermining that person's sense of resiliency by saying that, you know, you're going to, I mean, what does trauma do, right? It, it wounds. And, you know, then we, as you said, we have to go through this quote healing process and, you know, how fragile are we that we have to go through all of that, you know, over like being called a name or something. So um, I agree with you. It's a word that's overused. And um, I think the the definition of it, even within psychology has gotten um, so vague that it's become meaningless. That's interesting. Um, what about the word depression? Okay. So that's a really interesting one. So in psychology, you know, we can have, you know, clinical depression, you know, to qualify for a diagnosis of, you know, major depression, um, there's, there's certain criteria that need to be met. Um, but that's different, even in the world of a professional psychologist, to be able to say like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of depressed, you know, versus like, I have clinical depression, right? Like in, in the world of psychology, those are, those are two different things. Um, but what's interesting as well is a lot of people are now grabbing onto dysthymia, which is one way of putting that is it's almost like depression light. Like it's a, it's a diagnosis, but if you don't qualify for, you know, major depression oh. in the, in the DSM, then you might qualify for, you know, dysthymia, which is often described as like, kind of just like a low grade, you know, kind of is negativity, this, but you know, you're not full on depressed. This is sounding like the mental health version of pre-diabetes, mm, mm. right? So now they have this thing they call pre-diabetes where like, you're not diabetic, but you're like borderline, you're maybe heading there. So now they're diagnosing people as being pre-diabetic which is like a new, it's like a new sort of made up diagnosis. Yeah. You know, and what gets me too is, I mean, my own profession, like, you know, we'll, we'll have, and I, this isn't me, obviously, I, I don't work this way, but I know therapists, like they'll have people coming week after week after week, like literally for years and they'll never, you know, for, like for say dysthymia and like, they'll never say, you know what? And I've said this to clients, by the way, I've said to clients, I would rather that you skip my sessions, don't pay me for the next two weeks, put the money into a personal trainer. Let's see how getting your butt kicked at the gym really like affects your brain chemistry more than just, you know, coming here and essentially verbally ruminating, you know, for, for 45 minutes, which again, I'm not personally into that type of a style, but I've, I've seen like by definition, a lot of dysthymic or depressed patients will want that. They'll just, they'll want to sit there and complain because part of the um, diagnosis profile is also lethargy. So just kind of like, um, you know, I don't know, laziness is probably a judgmental word, you know, but like a, a lack of energy and a lack of willingness or drive to, you know, to take action. I'm cool with judgmental words. At least some people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chloe's Dr. Chloe's nicer than me. I'll just uh, I'll just say things. Um, how, how much of so I often talk about the connection between mental, physical, and spiritual health. Right. I think it's strange that for whatever reason, I can think of reasons, but in sort of our modern society, people speak about these things as if they're separate and they're siloed, right? As if your mind, body, and spirit are not connected and integrated. People talk about, you know, for example, if I, if I tell someone that, you know, 
they can say, say, say you've got someone who's sedentary and they don't exercise, they don't do sport, they don't train, they don't go to the gym, whatever. And I sort of talk about the fact that going to the gym or lifting weights or going for a run or training has mental health benefits. They sort of look at you weirdly because they imagine these things totally siloed off, right? Like no therapy is for mental health and, you know, pharmaceuticals are for mental health and training is just for the physical body and your relationships and your connection to God and your financial situation and your career and your environment and the weather, all, all these things are like not, you know, that that's a whole other arena. They're not, but it, it's, it's obvious they're all integrated, right? These things all work holistically. They work together. You can't kind of nicely separate out health, right? It, it would be like you're just eating a garbage diet or you're drinking tons of alcohol. Or you're not sleeping enough. You're not drinking enough. Like that's going to, that'll affect you physically. It'll also affect you mentally, right? But people don't draw these connections between these different elements. Like what, what do you think is going on there? Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question. But first of all, like, I just want to say, I totally agree with you. It's not even a scientific question, right? So when we do work out, we get dopamine, we get endorphins. Um, it's an example of what psychologists call behavioral activation. So like I mentioned, you know, with say somebody who's very depressed, one of their um, first things to go is their hygiene. And so I've worked on inpatient units where, um, you know, say somebody was extremely depressed, they haven't showered in, you know, two weeks, and, you know, we're doing everything we can to kind of get them out of that depression, but they're really entrenched in it. I've seen people be forced into a shower on an inpatient unit, just kicking and screaming. They don't want to be there. But after they are forced into that shower, which is the behavioral activation, doing the behavior of someone who is well enough to take a shower actually activates a different state of mental health for them. And they're like, okay, wow. All right. I'm clean. It, it, I have to admit it does feel better, you know, and, and, and they start to go from there. Um, you know, so I just want to say there's no question about it that that working out and taking care of your body affects your brain, it affects your mental health. And so why is that not, you know, platformed a lot more, um, you know, on an individual level? I think it might be, again, going to the secondary gains. Some people are not truly interested in getting better. They're in some certain way maybe kind of attached to their, you know, um, to their sadness, or they may be working with a therapist that, um, I hate to say this, but is frankly more interested in just churning out a weekly visit fee than, you know, really challenging the person and saying, you know, um, I'm not going to just let you sit here and validate every word that comes out of your mouth. You know, we're going to have real talk, you know, and we're going to have homework. And if you, you know, if, if, if you say you can't afford it again, I'll say, well, then skip my sessions, you know, like skip my sessions for a week and we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so I, again, I, I, I hate to say it, but I think as well that there's this unholy alliance, you know, with, with big pharma and, um, you know, just the government and APA. And I, I don't think that, that the, all these entities are always truly interested in helping people to truly get better. I think sometimes they're more interested in medicalizing and monetizing, you know, yeah. um, the, no, it's the not even a question. It, it's not even a question. Like it's just a fact it, it, it mm -hmm. is that way. Right. And big, mm -hmm. big pharma, their goal is to make money, which mm -hmm. is not 
an inherent bad thing, right? I'm a, I'm mm-hmm. a capitalist, mm-hmm. but um, there's good and bad ways of making money, and there's ways that are ethical, and there's ways that are unethical, and um, you know, pathologizing the human condition in the way that they're often doing for the sake of profit. I mean, in some cases, literally making up new making up new diseases and new conditions and new diagnoses so they can then package up a pill and then sell mm-hmm. it to that person and so on and then increase the dose. It's um yeah, it's all it's all pretty crazy. It's all pretty crazy. I, I have a question around um around depression. I, I'm gonna be very upfront here because I do not I, I don't understand it. Um I know that I'm People tell me I'm like lucky and I'm fortunate to be in the position where I've never experienced it. And I've never, like, I don't even have a, the personality type that my neuroticism score is zero out of 100. So I don't even think I'm, I have the capacity to experience anything even borderline bordering on depression. It, do, it, it doesn't compute in my brain. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to be like unsympathetic or lacking empathy or whatever. Like I just, well, maybe I'm lacking empathy because I genuinely don't understand it. Um, I, I'm always curious as to how much stuff, like where is the line between what might be called quote unquote real depression, clinical depression versus just someone's life sucking, right? So I I have never personally encountered someone who eats a great diet, exercises regularly, is in a good environment, enjoys their job, has loving friends, family, uh, you, who has who has a, a genuinely good life, not just on a surface level, because you can have a nice life on a surface level, but like have loads and loads of real problems going on. I, I I have not personally encountered someone who has all of those things, but then they're depressed. I I find that people sort out the things in their life that they're not happy with, and then lo and behold, they're no longer feeling depressed, and they're feeling a lot more content, happy. They've got meaning. They've got purpose all of that stuff. So I, I, I'm willing to believe that there are people who have like ticked off all that stuff and like they're still depressed, but I don't know. I, I Again, I feel the word is bandied around so much these days. I've seen things saying that like 30, 40% of people are depressed. And I'm like, that doesn't even, that if, if, if you're telling me this is like a condition, then I'm like, that cannot be true. I can believe that 30 to 40% of people are sad or they don't like their lives or they're not fully content or they're not living with I, I can totally believe that but i'm like you can't have 40 percent of people do not have like a mental disorder like that doesn't even at that point it's not a disorder right that's just like okay that's just how people are i don't i don't know i'm i don't know exactly what my question is here but i'm just trying to know where that line yeah is. yeah no i i i hear you you know kind of questioning the the concept of of depression and and wondering as you said like if someone really is you know being proactive um you, you said you said beginning like you know depressed versus you know your life just sucks um you know but as as the point of my book again is that we we want to harness the healthy function of anxiety which is to stimulate preparation behaviors so you know if your life sucks that anxiety is what's supposed to be stimulating you to change it right and interestingly one of the hallmark features of depression is actually a sense of helplessness and a and a sense of hopelessness and so that's why a lot of times anxiety will actually lead to depression so you know if um you know, you're 
having anxiety because, you know, you, you hate your job and you think your spouse is cheating on you and like everything's awful, you know, but you're not letting that anxiety stimulate you, you know, to do anything about it, then, you know, eventually you will develop, you know, just kind of an apathetic, helpless attitude. Um, which again is is why we we want to stimulate people to 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 do something about it. Um, uh, but and that's again why I think it's actually kind of dangerous to start reifying. It's okay not to be okay. You know everything sucks and you're depressed and you know that's okay. No, it's actually not. We're supposed to be stimulated. You know to to do something about it if we're dissatisfied. But Another, you know, thing that you you touched on there when you described this, you know, profile of a depressed person, you know, that that it's hard to compute for you, which by the way, it is for me too. Um, you know, and I don't know about you, but I personally have had a great deal of actual hardship in my life. Um, and and even in the hardest times, I was never depressed, you know. Um, I, I was really always thinking about what I could do about it. And I think even now, um, it, it makes even my hardest days, I can look back on days that I know were much harder for me. Um, and I frankly think on some level, people are just too soft. Like they just have had it too easy to the point where, you know, they're navel gazing their way and nitpicking their way into, into, you know, some sort of quote depression. But the other thing that you touched on is about having meaning in your life. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot like the 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 decline of rig- religiosity has been huge and it's so interesting to me again that the APA the American Psychological Association as far as I know they're not trumpeting or discussing this okay even though we know psychology studies do show that religiosity is a protective factor um, of, for, for your mental health right and so why is it then that that we're not seeing um you know go, go to your place of worship month, you know, Hey, it's good for your mental health or, Hey, even if you don't believe in, you know, a particular God, you know, maybe you should read some religious books and, you know, see, see, see if you can awaken your faith, you know, because it's actually, (laughs) no, but I mean, but to your point, you know, again, about, about people not having meaning, because I think some people confuse that on some level, you know, with depression. Um, so I would love to see, all of that address more. And, you know, you mentioned as well about um, that kind of nexus of body, mind, and spirit. And it's interesting to me that the etymology of the word psychology, the the Greek word psyche, where it comes from, actually means spirit. Um, and so, mm. yes, for sure. I, I just, I do think people need meaning and they do need to understand um, that there is a connection between body, mind, and spirit. Our podcast today is sponsored by The Wellness Company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from the Wellness Company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. 
Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. Yeah, well, some people don't even believe in the concept of a spirit or a soul. So obviously that element, they're not going to want to they're not going to want to entertain or discuss, let alone recommend. And I think that's a massive part of the problem. I, I think a lot of the problems that we're sort of currently having societally and culturally, I think the reason for them is pretty obvious. But I think we live in a strange time where sort of saying the obvious thing um, gets people attacked. I mean, you can also build a career off it. I've built a career off of saying a lot of obvious things. Um, and it, it, it's sort of strange. It's like people don't want to, the dots are all there, but people don't want to connect them. They don't want to make the link between the decline of family and the rise in fatherlessness and mental health problems. They don't want to make the link between obesity and people being sedentary and mental health problems. They don't want to make the connection between, um, you know, issues going on within and across the two genders and how this is impacting the way people are thinking and behaving. Like they don't want it, to, it's very strange. Like I said, it's very, it's very siloed. Right. And it's just, Oh, actually, well, here's a pill here, take this pill and this will make everything better. It's like, if you've got fundamental problems in your life that are causing you to feel anxious, causing you to feel depressed, causing you to feel sad, lonely, whatever it is, it's like, you can't just to me, it's like some, someone says they're lonely and you prescribe them a pill. I'm like, what? There probably is some type of pill that makes people feel lonely. I'm sure some chemist could formulate that. But it's like, well, the fundamental problem of loneliness is that you don't have meaningful relationships and connections with other human beings. So if you want to alleviate that, that's what you need to do. We're seeing the same with now they're pushing all these obesity drugs and injections and stuff. And it's like, if you are obese, it's because you're consuming too much relative to your energy level. The solution to that isn't just here, takes this big pharma pill. It's like, okay, like increase your movement, decrease your consumption. And over time, you know, you will lose weight. Many millions or billions of people have done this in the past. Like it, it works. So I, I don't know. It's strange. I think the problem is that I guess maybe this is one of the people because someone could say this is a downside of capitalism, which is that a lot of these solutions are not, um, you know, they're not lucrative. You don't, you don't make money from them, right? If someone has type two diabetes and you uh, recommend fasting to them as a way to put that into remission, which most doctors don't even know and won't promote, uh, nobody makes money off fasting, right? <laughs> right? Fasting no, I, is not I a totally... moneymaker. So I, I, I think all these things kind of just get, get linked together and it's creating it's creating, it's creating very, very significant problems. Like the amount of people, adults and young people who are just what, you know, again, some of it is subjective, right? Who are reporting themselves as being depressed or having anxiety or this mental health problem or that, like all these numbers are just going up and up and up and up. And I'm like, this is not, this is not good. This is not healthy. No, and alongside of all of that, I think what what you're also pointing out, and it's most it's most easy to see, as you pointed out, like in the obesity issues, right? Um, it, it is that there's 
um, we're, we're discarding the healthy function of shame, right? So they're at, just like there's a healthy function of anxiety, which I want everybody to know is to stimulate preparation behaviors. The healthy function of shame is to alert us when, you know, we're failing to meet our own standards, right? And, you know, the, the whole like no shame, you know, phrase and, and catch thing is, is I think really harmful, you know, to the point where now, as you mentioned, like say with obesity, this may shock you, Zuby. I don't even know if you've heard this yet, but did you know that there are many medical doctor offices now where if an obese patient comes in because they're having a knee problem, the, the medical doctor will not say to them that this may have to do with their body weight because that could be considered shaming this patient, right? So you see where this is a completely misguided, you know, form of compassion. You know, this is not helpful. And in fact, again, there's actually a healthy function to shame. So just like a person with no anxiety wouldn't think to look both ways before they cross the street, a person, you know, with no shame can sit there, you know, um, completely obese, you know, doing nothing good for themselves and then say, gee, I'm so depressed, you know, but have, have somehow put it really out of their awareness that this is their own doing on some level, that this is in their power. And psychologists have known for a long time that actually having an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control, external locus of control is like, hey, it rains. I can't help that. Life happens to me. Internal locus of control is, you know, I make choices that affect my life. We've always known as psychologists that an internal locus of control is associated with, you know, better mental health outcomes. And to have that internal locus of control, you have to have shame. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're losing that, even that healthy sense of shame. So I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. It's most obvious in body weight issues, but I think it comes about in, in depression and, and anxiety and so many other, you know, forms that are really just supposed to be part of the human experience on some level that can inform us and guide us. But um, we want to externalize them, you know, medicalize them, monetize them instead of taking, you know, internal locus of control, personal responsibility, ownership about them, which is actually the most empowering thing we can do. Mm. I think that point about shame is very interesting. I, I, I think what I would even say is that it hasn't been lost. It's just been shifted and transmuted, right? So shame is very, shame is very alive and well. What were, what was it you were talking about before you were talking about cancel culture? What, what is cancel That's culture? True. We want to shame right? everybody else. You see what I not, mean, right? Not our own shame. That's true. Yeah. I mean, if during the 2020, 2021 period, you didn't want to wear a mask or you didn't want to take the shot or you weren't pro like, man, people, people are not hesitant to throw shame around. Right. That's true. Uh, no, people, people are not hesitant. Right. So actually shame is weaponized all the time in our society and culture. But the thing is, things that should be shamed. Those are the things where you're saying, oh, no, no shame. Like, this is great. This is wonderful. In fact, in fact, let's celebrate it in some cases. And then there are things which are totally reasonable or good or just, OK, yeah, fair enough. And people are being shamed and attacked and canceled for those things. Do you see what I mean? So it's like a misapplication of it's, it's just like a poorly calibrated use of the social signal or the social phenomenon. 
yeah, shaming other people abounds left, right, and center for sure. But yeah, when I say that we've lost the health of shame, I mean about about oneself, about your own personal sense of shame. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your book. It's called it's called Nervous Energy. Um, mm -hmm. Harness the power of your anxiety. So we've used the term anxiety a whole bunch again. This is one of those terms that I, I again I used to think I knew what it meant. And now I see it used so much and by so many people in all these different situations where I'm like, do I now have a different definition of what I call anxiety versus what other people are calling anxiety, right? I understand feeling anxious, um, but when someone is just like, I have anxiety, again, I don't really know what that means. I've had people actually try to explain it to me and I don't truly understand it. I get, I can understand like, okay, I'm about to step on stage and do a performance and I've got some butterflies in my tummy and like, I'm feeling like, you know, excited, but like a little bit of anxious, right? I've got that nervous energy, right? I get that. Okay. You've got an exam coming up the following morning, right? You're going to get married in a week. You're feeling a little bit, right? I get that. I get that like feeling nervous thing, just like I understand sadness. Um, but I don't get the, when someone's just like, I have anxiety, just like as a thing that they just own and identify into, I don't, I don't quite understand that. So maybe you can help me. Yeah, no, you're so, I, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think when I hear someone say, I have anxiety, what, what I personally think that they typically mean is they mean, I, I have anxiety that I haven't learned how to harness it into anything productive yet, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that their um, interior life is objectively any different than, you know, anybody else's, except that that they, as you said, they identify with that label. And it's it's really many times just simply that they haven't learned how, how to channel it. Um, and that's why my book, I called it Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety, because I had tons of like, you know, these really successful type A New Yorkers coming into my office in Manhattan. And I noticed like practically all of them, you know, on some level were there for, you know, something to do with anxiety. And understandably, they had, you know, kind of a love-hate relationship with the anxiety. They wanted help in learning how to, you know, control the anxiety rather than the anxiety controlling them. But they didn't want to totally get rid of it, right? So um, I could tell that they were a little bit afraid even to totally get rid of it, much like the way actually that when an anorectic, an anorect, a person with anorexia, uh, maybe that is, you know, truly like really, really extremely um, underweight, they, they, they want to get help, but they're afraid that if they, if they get quote cured, that that's going to mean that they're going to blow up like a balloon and like be hugely obese. And so they're kind of afraid of that. And so you have to explain to them, no, no, you know what, you can get cured and you can even still be slim. You know, you'll just also be healthy, you know? And so I felt like it was the same thing I had with some of these folks is to be able to say, look, you don't have to be like in this constant state of like OCD panic overwhelm but you can still keep that healthy edge that that anxiety gives you, you know, that that little awareness that, you know, you want to think ahead, you want to see around corners, you want to take extra steps of preparation that other people don't take that sense of like being on your toes, you can keep that that's that's the healthy function of anxiety. 
Um, but we just don't want to let it snowball into the overwhelming space. Because a lot of them I found, they were actually almost, they had a habit of almost purposely picking themselves up into a little fit of anxiety because they, they were afraid of becoming complacent and just kind of lazy. And so they would constantly kind of like work themselves up into that state. And, and they, they finally just needed to learn a little bit of a middle ground. And so that's what my book is about. It has nine very specific practical techniques, because obviously there's different kinds of situations. Like, you know, you mentioned, say someone's anxious about taking a test, right? Um, there, the good news is they're going to get some adrenaline and things like that. Mother Nature gives us that so that we have the energy to, you know, say, you know, make some flashcards, do some drills, that kind of thing. And that's how we lean into the anxiety in an in a active way. Some of the nine techniques are about actively leaning in. But then there are other situations where it's actually helpful to pivot away from anxiety. So again, like for some people, they're like, oh, if you have anxiety, just bliss it away and think of a beach, right? That's actually not a good idea. <laughs> if you're nervous about that big test, you, you don't want to just ignore it. But what about when that big test is over and then you still have just this extra jazzed up energy left over? Then you might want to do a different technique from my book. Um, this technique would be called the mental shortlist, which is where in advance you come up with five things that you know are going to be more productive uses of your mental energy. Could be anything from getting a jump on your holiday shopping, writing notes of appreciation to people you keep forgetting, uh, new work projects, whatever. But make a list of five things because when we do get anxious, back to that body-mind connection, our vision actually gets more narrow, not only our mental vision, but even our physical vision. And so when we're anxious, we can't think of it. So in advance, we list out five good things. And that way, after the test, when we have all this, you know, free floating extra energy, we have an easy target where we can point that energy at and make it work to our good use. So there are lots of healthy ways that people can use anxiety. And I actually find that when people don't know how to use anxiety productively and they just want to block it out, that's actually when they're prone to developing like a quote, a serious disorder. I hear all that. What What's the difference or what are the differences between anxiety, worry, and stress? Are these different things or... Yes. I mean, so technically, you know, worry is definitely part of anxiety. So, you know, like anxiety is basically like, you know, a, a, a concern about a future event and not being able, you know, to meet the demands of that event, right? Um, that's just a very simple kind of crude definition. Um, so, you know, certainly worry, you know, would be part of that. Um, stress is when we have demands on us and in the exact current moment, we're experiencing a sense of feeling maxed out, right? Just like at the gym, you know, when you're like lifting muscles and your muscles are starting to shake, you know, your muscles are under stress. But what's interesting, and I know you know this, is that our muscles only grow when we put them under stress. So stress is not the enemy. That's why I want people to know we don't want to get stressed about being stressed. We don't want to be anxious about being anxious, right? We want to just kind of like recognize that we are stressed 
and then, you know, see what extra resources we can pull in to help us deal with the stress or if we're stressed because there's too many demands or we've, we've neglected to, you know, prepare appropriately for a situation and that's what's causing the stress, you know, then, then what can we learn from it and how can we change and grow from it? Um, so you said stress, anxiety, and worry. Yeah. I think I covered them mm. all now. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No, cause I, I hear, like I said, I used to hear the word worry more. I think a lot of people now have sort of replaced the word worry with anxiety. Um, even stress. I feel like I used to hear the words worry and stress more and hear anxiety not so often. Now I hear anxiety a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, again, I understand once what someone means when they say I feel stressed or when they say I feel worried. But when someone says, like, I have anxiety, I don't know if I get that. I even get I, I'm anxious, right? I can understand being anxious about a specific about a specific thing, right? Something is coming up. Something is on the horizon. And, of course, you're thinking about it, right? And that creates a, a certain feeling. Um, I, I guess I, I just try to understand this thing of just kind of being in this permanent state of, I don't know, I, I, maybe, maybe, no, I'll, maybe I, I'll just never quite understand it. Well, that's because I, I think that there's, there's confusion oftentimes, you know, even within the people, you know, that are saying that, because like you said, it's, it's, it, it's, I have anxiety, you know, it's not like even though psychologists like to pretend it's sometimes like the same as saying like I have diabetes, right. And I can do a blood test and I can, you know, see that you mm. have it. Um, but I have anxiety. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. So does every other human, every other human being has, you know, anxiety present. It's part of a healthy, you know, human profile. The question is, you know, what are you doing with it? That's, that's where we want to go with it. And some people just haven't been taught again, because of this, crazy culture that that actually wants people to identify with having a quote diagnosis so that they feel as if their mental state just happens to them like the weather and there's nothing that they can do about it um you know as opposed to saying you know of course just like everybody else i have anxiety and i'm going to read dr chloe's book or some other book and learn how to use it as a springboard to accomplish what i want to do just the way mother nature intended yeah, I think there's so many things that are like, like I, I use the term before, I, I often call it pathologizing the human condition, right? I think that for all of human history, for millennia, there have been things that people have felt and they've dealt with and they've experienced. Um, but now so many of these things are being pathologized as if they're not just sort of part of what human beings go through, right? They're just part of the experience, right? Worry is a real thing. Sadness is a real thing. Happiness, uh, excitement, love, anger, right? Like all, all of these things are just, it's part of the human experience, right? Tragedy, unfortunately, sometimes it's environmental. Sometimes humans do awful things to one another. Um, sometimes people get sick, people have accidents. All, all of these things are just, some of it's good, some of it sucks. Um, but it's the human experience. And it seems like, at least in the modern West, people are sort of increasingly bad with just dealing with reality and sort of ac accepting it and then dealing with it and just going, yeah, like that's, it sucks and we can have sympathy, but also you have to strengthen yourself to deal with some of these things, right? Because uh, even on, on a basic level, 
I mean, I, I talk about this in my upcoming book. It's one of the, it's actually one of the general chapters, but it's just about the fact that all of like, I mean, you want to talk about tragedy. I mean, all of us are going to die. Every single person that you know and love is going to die at some point. We're all going to die at some point, right? Like every human being, just a <laughs> all fact. Through history, like that. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fact. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you do with that information? Like, that's a, that's a very reasonable reason to feel depressed and anxious and like, just worried, right? Like you you could spend your whole life and there are sadly people who actually do this, right? You could spend your whole life sort of so afraid of death, both your own and other people's that, that you never really live, right? You're just lamenting, you're sad all the time. You're just feeling freaked out because you don't know like what's going to happen, when's going to happen, whatever, right? People get sick, accidents happen, there's crime, all these things. And you could just sort of wrap yourself. It, it's kind of like what they wanted people to do during the the time period I call this scamdemic, right? Just mm. sit at home, wear your mask, don't see anyone, don't touch anyone, don't touch anything. Like just, just, just sit there, just stay there, don't move. Because if you do move, you might get sick. We're not going to tell you that you might get sick, even if you still just stay there. But it, it was sort of like a very strange pattern. You've talked about the internal and external locus of control. The way I I see it that way, and the way I I see the way different people sort of approach life and approach even how they treat other people. This could be their own children. This could be just people out there in the world. But there's always a balance between protecting people from the environment and strengthening people, right? And it's not an either or thing, right? There, There's a reasonable level of safety we should want in our environments. You could think physical environment, digital environment, nature, a household, whatever it is, right? There's a reasonable level of safety where you want to nerf the environment. You want to make the environment less dangerous. But then at the same time, you have to recognize that you cannot eliminate all risk down to zero and you have to strengthen individuals, right? So if you look at the free speech debate, I would say, okay, look, you're an adult. You're going into a world where people are going to disagree with you. Some people are going to be mean. Some people are going to be rude. Some people are going to be insulting. People have different viewpoints, religious, political, cultural, social, whatever it is, you're going to encounter millions, billions of people out there who disagree with you, right? So you need to strengthen your mind. You need to strengthen yourself to be able to be resilient and deal with that like an adult. But then the other approach is, okay, no one is allowed to say anything that could potentially upset, uh, offend, you know, anybody, right? This is where, okay, so so those are like the, the two different approaches. We need to nerf the entire world or hey, how about we make individuals stronger? And then you can oh, you're starting to sound toxically masculine there, Zubi. Oh, yeah, um, I, yes. I, I am. Yes. Okay. So I, I think you're actually, you're, you're getting to another issue, which is that I think that there's been a feminization of, you know, academia and, and culture. And what's interesting is that when we look at um, scales of dominance in a personality, um, you know, obviously when men are, you know, dominant, it's easy to notice and spot, you know, a dominant man and, you know, like what that looks like. Whereas for women, uh, we actually tend to express dominance more through extreme nurturance. Mm. 
right? And so it's like that, you know, kind of almost like have another bite of soup, dear, you know, and they're like, and you're like, no, no, I'm, I'm not hungry. They're like, no, you, you must eat, you know, and, and it, it looks like it's caring and nurturing, but, but really what it is, is it's controlling. And then, you know, when we look at that alongside this, you know, rise of the whole quote, you know, toxic masculinity thing and the APA, the American Psychological Association, even put out these ridiculous guidelines a couple of years ago about, you know, quote, traditional masculinity, they called it. And it was really dogging things like, you know, stoicism, which, again, I just exactly what you're talking about, you know, the ability to have a little bit of a thick skin and, and withstand things, you know, things that are, are actually good for mental health. And so, you know, this idea, as you said, to kind of nerf the environment, I think in many ways is also a play to control the environment and to pathologize anybody who doesn't want that as, you know, well, you must be toxically masculine, you know, so um, that's a whole other conversation, I guess. But again, I'm just so glad, Zuby, that you are who you are and that, you know, you're spreading like this word and this message because we need it. And, you know, like I said, you've inspired me as well, you know, honestly, to really, it was so scary for me. And I'm not fully all the way out of the closet yet, but I'm definitely getting, I'm like three quarters of the way out, you know, so you, you're an inspiration. I'm honored. Thank you so much, Dr. Chloe. Thank you so much. So tell people where they can find you online and where can they get a copy of Nervous Energy? Yeah, so the easiest way, because I know there's like a listening audience, and so drchloe.com is kind of hard to spell. So um, people can go to, I made a URL, it's makeachange.us. If they go to makeachange.us, um, it will take you to, you know, my free speech blog and that kind of thing. And then um, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety is available wherever books are sold. And um, it's also available in audiobook, which I think is an important thing. And I'm happy to say it's been translated now into um, like three or four different languages too, but English is the only one I can read. So, <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Did you do the narration yourself? I wish. Unfortunately, during the scamdemic, they weren't having, you know, <laughs> authors read their books. And so that that kept me from it. But my other book, Dr. Chloe's Ten Commandments of Dating, is on audiobook. And I do narrate that one. Awesome. Wait. So someone else can narrate it, but you can't because of well, Yes. I mean, again, as you said, it was a scamdemic, but um, <laughs> so, and, and nervous energy I did with a big publisher. And so I oh. think that they, they were just, you know, whatever insurance, whatever, they just didn't want to have, oh, you know, crowds of people. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Let me, let me not try to understand this thing. Yeah. We can't understand anyway. the, the under not understandable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't want another YouTube, I don't want another YouTube hit. So <laughs> <laughs> We need to, Tell we need to that. keep this, we'll, we'll keep this podcast YouTube safe. I've, I've, yeah. I have several episodes that uh, never went on YouTube because, you know, I got, I got the one warning. In fact, yesterday they uh, said that I could have the warning removed, but I had to, I had to do a, a little retraining. So oh, um, a little re-education. Yeah, this is, camp. this is a new thing. Yeah. They just brought this in like this week. Now, if you get a strike on your, no, not a strike. If you get a warning on your YouTube channel, you can get the warning removed in 90 days, but you have to do their mandatory retraining to make sure you understand their policies and uh yeah it's got a little bit of a i noticed a little ideological bias in there 
just a little nice maybe a little bias in there yeah just saying just saying but um dr chloe thank you so much for coming on the show um it's been a pleasure to talk to you and good luck with everything you're doing and keep on speaking up thank you zuby same to you